Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Morris Ardouin, one of the hosts of the podcast Queer Voices of the South. Today, I'm talking with Gail Massey about her book, Rising and Other Stories, which was released in April this year by Bronzeville Books. Welcome to the podcast, Gail. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I want to let the listeners know a little bit about you, so I'm going to read uh, the, a little bit of bio from your uh, website materials. Uh, Gail Massey's debut novel, The Girl from Blind River, received the two th- 2018 Florida Book Award and was a finalist for the Clara Johnson Award. Her work has been featured in Lambda Literary, Cut Bank, Crime Reads, Sable, The Tampa Bay Times, The Wall Street Journal, Saw Palm, and Tampa Bay Noir. Gail was a Tennessee Williams Scholar at the Suwannee Writers Conference, a fellow at Writers in Paradise, and has served as a panel judge for the Lambda Literary Awards. She has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize in both fiction and nonfiction. Here's a little bit about the book. In story after story in her diverse new collection, Rising and Other Stories, Gail Massey illustrates the moments that shape and alter destiny, bringing each to life through interconnected themes of moving water and a sense of loss. Massey shares with us an unvarnished narrative of a world that objectifies women and the strength and resourcefulness required to attempt to overcome those limitations. From the panicked mother in Racine who escapes to the ocean and a young girl's last fishing expedition with the dying father in glass to the inevitable end in marked and the gamble in not so fast, these stories show how simple twists of fate can change a person forever. Ivy Waters and Long Time Coming both explore the loss of a father in very different ways and how the identities of the daughters are rooted in those losses. And Elise's life in Rising is told in contrasts as she develops a use of her volition to pull her toward the life she deserves. Massey's protagonists are everyday folk depicting in, depicted in stories that explore the scars of redemption, despair, daring, and longing, a visceral sense of fate, and most of all, each character's desires and will to live. These stories will transform you and deepen your view of the world as Massey helps us discern societal constructs and their acute burdens and the many ways that people, particularly women and girls, attempt to rise above them. And let me tell you, having just finished the book a few days ago, that is a spot on description for that. Uh, for the, I think that's on the book uh, jacket on the on the blurb, the book blurb. Um, it's perfect. Um, it was a wonderful book to read. Gail, tell us about how you came to write this book. Well, these stories have been um, uh, in in development for about ten years. I, I think I wrote the first story. Um, Ivy Waters 10 years ago, and I, I started exploring how to write short stories in order to, you know, find my way into the publishing world and get some pieces uh, into journals and magazines. Um, but I fell in love with writing short stories in that process. And I wrote uh, 
them just through the years and until last summer um, when I had the opportunity to put them all in a collection, I sat down and, and filled out the collection with three more stories. And the story that I'm reading today, Not So Fast, is um, one of the stories that I wrote last summer. Um, I think the stories kind of reflect how I, I see women um, and the, the disparity of how women are treated in, in our world. Um, I'm very preoccupied that with that, um, with those issues, with feminist issues, and I felt compelled to write these stories that sort of speak um, from the point of view of women on the fringes uh, struggling to survive. I felt it, it's uh, it was my opportunity to present those stories, and that. Um, and I really, I really wanted to give more voice to those perspectives. Thank you. Um, the char- characters in the collection are, are often uh, from or, or adjacent to the LGBTQ plus community, which we at Queer Voices of the South love, of course. Um, and they're, um, they're all based in um, either Florida or Georgia, from what I understand. Um, you don't, uh, each story doesn't exactly identify the location, but you know that it's one of those two places. Um, at the same time, they have a universal appeal. They're not just LGBT people. They're, they're everyday people. How do you do both of that at, at once, which you've done beautifully in this book? Well, I think, I think that that is a result of being out and queer for my entire adult life. Uh, the way I see the world is through a queer lens. And so the stories that I write are, are centered and grounded in a female perspective that um, believes and and identifies with feminist values and that's that's an inclusive point of view oh thank you um uh, i i wanted to um to uh give you uh, that let's let the listeners listen to a piece of the uh, story but i have one more question before we get to your story um why did you choose to highlight the story rising for the book's title just curious well, I think a lot of the stories, um, you know, they're about people living on the fringe and in somewhat desperate situations. And that's that's real to me. That's a very real way that a lot of people live. And at the end of the book, I wanted to give uh, another perspective of, of being in love with this planet, with nature, and being able to um, become fulfilled and, and comforted just by nature, um, just by being in nature. So rising made sense to me to come at the end since that, uh, not to give much away, but since that, um, the, that story points to more of a connection to the earth that I also feel very strongly about. And it seemed like a good way to end the book on that particular note. Yeah, it, it come, you, 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 um, your the expression about connection to the earth comes through in, in several of the stories in wonderful ways. One of the ones I love is um, that you give an example. There are a couple characters in 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 different stories who, who find the same thing, is that that their troubles are small compared to the bigness of the world. Um, and and, and we're kind of like those baby turtles on the beach that you mentioned who crawl to the shore to survive, and we don't all make it. 
Um, and there's not much we can do about it, no matter how hard we try. So I, I love that thread running through some of those stories, and particularly, like you said, in Rising. Um, so this is a good time. If you want to uh, read us uh, uh, one of the stories, that would be great for the listeners, I think. Well, great. I, uh, I've chosen to read Not So Fast. It's a, it's, um, I think it's a perfect length for this. So you want me to just jump in? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Bristol sat on her bed looking through the photographs a classmate had taken of her for an interview that was scheduled that night. Like most nights, her roommate, Caden, had gone to bed after their allotted two hours of streaming. The girl was sound asleep, but she cried out. It happened every night. Sometimes she let out a small yelp. Sometimes it was full-blown wailing. Both were heartbreaking. Bristol waited to see if Caden would quiet, but when the moaning began, she reached across the small space between their narrow beds and squeezed the girl's hand. Caden stopped crying, and Bristol, having defeated the nightmare one more time, felt the knot in her own stomach relax. Each night, it was the same. She and Caden had shared a room since Caden was 12 and Bristol was 13. Caden was especially troubled the first year and always whimpered after she fell asleep. Almost every night back then, Bristol would wake to find Caden in bed next to her. They'd both been taken from their mothers in an operation run by county law to flatten the uptick in opioid use that was spreading across the state. Foster care homes popped up all over Biggs County. Six kids to a house, sometimes seven. Bristol knew right away that this was intended to be a long-term situation. Her own mother got five years for dealing, and she'd never even heard when or if the woman got out. The girls in Bristol's house missed their mothers, some more than others. Nightmares occurred throughout the house routinely, and Bristol stayed up until midnight, knowing that even if Caden was okay, another girl down the hall would need her. It became her role to soothe them as the staff took the stance that given time, each girl would eventually grow out of it. Bristol, being the oldest in her house, the girls looked up to her to figure things out. Even the simplest things were left to her. Which boy band was the hottest? Whether chocolate ice cream was better than vanilla? If one of the girls got a scratch, they'd cry until Bristol appeared, appraised the damage, and applied a bandage. If a lightning storm washed across the sky, they'd all crawl under Bristol's bed. At first, it gave her a sense of importance, a sense she belonged. She had the power to comfort, to decide. Three staffers ran the house, and another took the weekends. But over the years, everyone had just gotten used to following her lead. The weekend house manager would not even start supper until Bristol had given the approval for the night's meal. Pizza or burgers? Cookies or cupcakes? The same questions every Friday and Saturday night. While the girls watched their Disney Channel after supper, Bristol helped hand out the bedtime meds. The smaller ones didn't put up such a fuss if their meds were handed out halfway through dessert. Ice cream made life easier in the house no matter if every one of them was getting pudgier by the month. Bristol was washing and drying their bowls when she noticed that the medicine cabinet had been unlocked. She pulled it open and read the prescriptions. Xanax and various strengths for each girl. How many years would it be before the state cracked down on benzodiazepines? The kids that survived foster care would leave addicted, 
They'd score some menial job that might keep them fed, but they'd be looking for dope on the street. The county would sweep out the dealers and another generation would enter the system and the contract with the pharmaceutical industry would be renewed. Take kids from their parents and turn them into an addict. There had to be some way out. The bottle with her own name on it was different than the others, but she wasn't surprised. Early on, the docs had said she was hyperactive. Then another changed her diagnosis to depression. At the hospital, she heard personality or disorder whisper behind her back, but to their face, to her face, they called it a mood disorder. All she knew was that she was sad. She thought she had a right to be. She'd been spitting out her pills for three days now and could feel the familiar distortion settling in behind her eyes. She learned that sort of thing got unwanted attention from the staff and hid it well. Coming off the stuff was hard and she'd been involuntarily admitted three times in the last two years, but she had to try one last time to get clean. She was glad it was the weekend because she wouldn't have to deal with the nosy teachers at her high school. They were always watching her. Last week, just laughing too loud in chem lab, got her sent to the school social worker. But she was graduating in a month, and she would have her freedom. The house manager came down the hall for her nightly rounds, checking that each girl was in her assigned bed. She opened the door briefly, looked at Bristol and the sleeping Caden, and turned off the overhead light. Bristol went to the window, slid the curtains to the side, and opened it. The scent of jasmine and yellow moonlight filled the room. A breeze stirred the air. Caden rolled over and opened her eyes. Don't go. I have an interview. Bristol slipped on her jeans and unzipped her backpack. She reached under the mattress and got the rest of the photos. Caden threw back her sheet. You mean an addition at the club. Caden grabbed an envelope, a photo from Bristol, her naked back to the camera. Call it what you want. Bristol stood with her hand out, waiting. They both knew Caden would give it back. A car engine idled on the street two houses down. Bristol pulled her dark hair into a ponytail. Caden leaned out the window to see the car. You know there will be drunk men there, right? And they'll be pawing at you. I know it pays good money. Better than Walmart or Waffle House. And it's a lot easier to dance your way through life than it is to sling pancakes. I'll be 18 next week, Caden. How long do you think they'll let me stay here? I got to have my own money to start out on my own. You should talk to your case manager. Maybe you can work here. They won't let me. You know they got a hard-on over that fucking mood disorder shit. Now Walmart won't even consider my application with that number of times I've been admitted. Caden dropped back down on her bed. Are you coming back tonight? The little girls are planning a birthday party for you. It'll crush them if you ruin their party. I know, geez, all week it's been like streamers or confetti. Picnic or Chinese buffet. You'd think no one ever had a birthday before. It's all they have to look forward to, and they're worried that when you move out, they'll never see you again. I can't help that. I never wanted to live here. Never wanted a bunch of crybaby girls hanging off me. Caden turned her head into her pillow, and Bristol knew she had hit a nerve. Good, if that's what it took to get a little space. She crawled out the window. She planned on getting back to the home unnoticed by sunrise. She and Caden could make up then. The passenger side of the Jaguar was unlocked. Bristol glanced toward the back seat to make sure the one 
the woman was alone before getting in. You ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. I only asked because you aren't wearing the top I told you to. Where's that slinky business? Bristol's head spun a little with the worry that the woman would tell her to get out. That and the fact that she hadn't taken her pills for a few days. She pulled a pink satin top from the bottom of her backpack. I've got it. I'll change on the way. The woman smiled and reached over to take the tie out of Bristol's hair. You're prettier with your hair down. It wasn't the first time the woman had touched Bristol, but it was just as much of a thrill. Bristol made herself lean into the seat back and not look at the woman. She was beautiful, and if she thought Bristol was hot, then it might actually be true. They rode over the bayway bridges with the windows down, the warm breeze on their skin. The woman laid her hand on Bristol's knee, and it felt like lightning shooting straight to her core. For a moment, she, fr she froze, wondering if the woman would slide her hand up her thigh, but she didn't. Bristol wrapped her fingers around the woman's hand. It was the wrong move. The woman pulled her hand back and put it on the steering wheel. No one's going to hold your hand tonight, you know that, right? We're not going to prom. I know that, Bristol said. She felt the sudden impulse to jump out of the car. The woman laughed. Put that top on. We're almost there, and I don't want to keep anyone waiting. The car slowed for a turn onto a gravel road. Bristol pulled her t-shirt over her head. I thought we were going to the casino. I said it was a high-end party. I didn't say casino. If things go okay, we can talk about the casino next time. Is it just a house? Trust me, kid, this is not just a house. The woman turned onto an oyster shell road that seemed a mile long. Half moon cast shadows through the palm trees and oleanders that lined the drive. The house came into view when they rounded the last bend three stories high and as wide as a strip mall. Sports cars of obscure brands that Bristol had never seen before were parked in front, along with three limousines. A chill went up the back of Bristol's arms. Even on a warm night like this, she would freeze in the little top she had brought. She tried to think of a harmless question that wouldn't anger the woman, one that wouldn't trigger her warning system. She thought of her case manager, the high school social worker, and the house staff. How do you know these people, she said. The woman slipped her finger beneath Bristol's black bra strap. Don't worry about it. You won't know anyone here. Do this for me and everyone gets along just fine. The woman took Bristol's hair and wrapped it in her fist, pulled it close. Bristol had been kissed before, the, but this kiss shook her. She felt a new kind of tension down her spine, straight to her crotch. The woman tightened her fist around Bristol's hair and pulled her closer even. Bristol couldn't have turned away if she wanted to, but no part of her body wanted this to end. She wanted the woman to touch her everywhere. Briefly, Bristol wondered if she was queer. Maybe she'd been queer all along. Maybe that was the problem with her this whole time. Maybe that was why she didn't fit in. The only thing she knew for sure was that whatever the night was about to throw at her, she wanted this woman to be by her side. But then the woman pulled back. Put the top on. Don't forget your backpack. They got out of the car, walked to the house. It was lit with torches that flickered so maniacally that Bristol wondered if they were real or only in her head. In the distance, the night pulsed with the beat of a disco. 
Two men wearing polo shirts and oversized red ball caps walked out of the house. The woman's phone binged and she stopped. I'll be right there, the woman said. Listen, they'll ask you to do a lot of different things, but if you say no, they'll back away. You also won't get paid. It's your choice. One of the men, the one in the pink polo sh shirt, took her elbow. Follow me, he said. Give me a minute, the woman said and waved at the air before turning to answer her phone. When she reached the front door, Bristol glanced back and saw the woman's car start down the driveway. Bristol started to turn around, but pink polo dude had a grip on her arm. Don't worry, he said. She's just going to pick up another candidate. Lots of girls want this gig, you know. The first floor was an enormous room with couches and love seats, marble floors and floor-to-ceiling windows on an opposite wall. Dozens of men sipped drinks from sparkling glasses. When Bristol entered the room, each of them scanned her head to toe. An electric current ripped at the back of her head, and the room wobbled. The guy at her elbow kept her walking, and the men returned to their conversations. She wondered if she'd already been passed over. They exited through a wall of sliding glass doors that led to a lawn sloping down to an oversized swimming pool with several inflated white plastic swans and clumps of water lilies. Music blared through speakers set up along the perimeter of the yard. A DJ danced behind a table set up high above the far side of the pool. A hundred half-naked people danced in the grass around the pool, but no one was in the water. A breeze washed across the surface and ruffled the lily pads. A girl wearing only panties stood on the diving board, searching the water below her, her thin arms folded over, protectively over her breasts. If she doesn't do it, it'll be your chance, pink polo dude, relaxed his grip on Bristol's arm. The DJ cut the music and the quiet crowd quieted, men from inside the veranda. A spotlight lit the girl on the diving board, she covered her mouth with her hand as she stared into the water. The guy pulled Bristol through the crowd to the edge of the pool. Will she do it? The DJ asked and the crowd yelled, jump. The girl laughed nervously. She pointed into the pool and Bristol followed the line of her arm. An alligator sat on the bottom of the pool just below the girl. What the fuck? Bristol stepped away from the edge of the pool, but the guy caught her arm again. Take it easy. It's only a four footer. The magnification of the water makes it seem bigger than it really is. She's supposed to jump in there with that? That's fucked up. She has a choice. The girl leaned over the water so far that Bristol thought she might fall in. Is she high? Ha, no, she's broke. The guy didn't even look at Bristol. She gets a thousand for every gator she outswims. The girl sat down on the edge of the board and stirred the water with her foot. Behind her, the lily pads rustled and the rigid spine of another alligator quietly broke the water's surface as it floated into view. Careful, someone in the, yell, in the crowd yelled, and the girl tucked her foot underneath her thigh. The gator swam under the board. It was smaller than the one sitting on the pool's bottom, but now the girl's chances were cut in half. This is whacked, Bristol said. Nah, it's just a little fun. Almost anyone can outswim little gators like those. Besides, that girl is dumb as a rock. How else is she going to make money? I mean, look at her. Skinny little fuck. No tits. Girls like that can't even suck a guy off proper. Bristol jerked her arm away. 
He flicked her fingers at the lace on her top and tightened his grip. What did you think you were coming here for? A fashion show? When she was in fifth grade, Bristol's class had taken a field trip to a gator farm where a man dangled dead chickens over the water. The bigger ones could jump ten feet out of the water if they were hungry enough. Even though the two in the pool were smaller, Bristol was too close to the water to the water if either of them were starving. I didn't come here for this. She tried to pry his fingers off. Easy there, girl. You came here of your own accord to entertain the party. Your pal in the jag already got her cut. You'll get paid if you swim fast enough. Just think of what you can buy with that money. The girl on the board waved a finger no. She stepped off the board and ran back to the deck. The crowd moaned and shouted for her to come back. But another gator had floated in the view, into view and the girl refused. Good thing for you she chickened out, the guy said, and dragged Bristol toward the dry, diving board. Here's what you do. Go out to the end of the board and tease the crowd. Make a big deal of being scared. But I am scared and I'm not diving into that pool. Once you get out there, take off your top and show them what little bit you've got. Make it a tease. Then take off your jeans. They'll only s- slow you down in the water. He kept his grip on her and pushed her up on the board. The crowd got loud again. The guy smiled. I feed them every few days. I doubt they're all that hungry. She tried to pull away again, and he yanked her toward him. Stop fucking around. These people came here for a show, and you're going to give it to them. Just dive straight toward the swim out. Another gator appeared from beneath the lily pads. There's another thousand for you right there. She could buy all the girls at home new bikes, and take them all out for supper. How many are there? Doesn't matter. You get paid for how many I see when you dive. I see five. Where else are you going to get five grand for one minute of work? Get going. At the other end of the pool, the woman reappeared with another girl at her side. Another man held that girl's wrist. The woman smiled at Bristol and cocked her head to the side as if to say, What'd you expect? What had she expected? A party? Well, here it was. To get noticed and feel like a rock star? This was her chance. All her life she'd been swimming in rivers and lakes, knowing there were gators lurking on the mucky bottom, invisible and shrouded in the weeds and muds. Mud. She studied the water. Now there were six. What were six half-grown gators swimming lazily in a clear pool? Everyone was watching her, chanting for her to jump, She calculated the distance to the swim out and guessed it to be 20 feet. 6,000, she yelled to the guy. He pulled out a wad of cash and held it up for her to see. She stepped to the very end of the board, felt it lift and fall beneath her feet. She pulled her top over her head and the crowd screamed louder. She unzipped her jeans, stood on one foot and then the other, got them off without falling in. The crowd was was a low murmur now just a buzz inside her head. The gators gathered below the board. She would fight for whatever prize they got. They would fight for whatever prize they got, and she knew she could be ripped apart even before she bled out. She rolled her jeans into a tight ball, tied them together with the pink top. She looked again at the guy. What was he thinking? That these people wanted to see a girl torn limb from limb? To see the water turn red with her blood? Maybe they did. Maybe she wouldn't even be the first. She backed up on the board and threw her balled-up clothes at the middle of the clump of gators. 
Instantly, they attacked it. She ran down the board and dove to the swim out. Two kicks in the water, and she was at the edge, climbing out. She rolled away from the pool, and the crowd surrounded her, pulling her to their to her feet. They were laughing and pointing at something in the water. Two of the gators tore at her jeans, ripping them half at the crotch, in half at the crotch, and dragging the legs to the bottom. Another one had shredded the top. Pink strips of fabric were caught in its teeth. It didn't matter. She had been faster than them, and now she wanted to get out of there. Crawl back in through the wet bedroom window and show the cash to Caden. In the morning, she could take the girls out to breakfast, maybe even splurge on an afternoon at the movies. The guy came over, laughing and holding the cash above his head. Bristol reached for it, but he pulled his hand away. The crowd, yeah, the crowd yelled for more. Huh-uh, little girl. Not so fast. He dangled the money over the water. Do it again. The end. Well, um, that is so so uh, sad and and horrible, actually horrifying, beautifully written, but it's scary. It's just it's so real. Um, I congratulate you. It's spell it, it it it's a as hearing you read it <laughs> was like um, reading it myself. I was like, oh my goodness, it it propels you. Um, you can't believe it's happening. Um, so it's wonderful, and uh, I can tell the readers that every story has that power. So. Um, Congratulations, and thank you for doing oh, that. Thank you. Um, thank you, I, I, I love your writing. I, I, your writing, your sentences are beautiful and compact and, and, and complex and simple and at the same time elegant. Um, it's just a treat to read you. Um, who are your writing heroes? And that's a big question. Oh. <laughs> that's a big question, <laughs> but no pressure. Yeah, right. Um, I have so many um really like at the very very top of my list and i don't think my stories are anything like hers at all but i love marilyn robinson i she's she is uh manna for the soul as far as i'm concerned she's like the most profound american writer ever and and, and we're blessed to have her stories and they come out just every few years she has a novel but i i truly love her and i also really love uh, Elizabeth Strout, I have learned so much from her. She she also writes really profound stories of family and and existence and existential dilemmas. Um, and then going on beyond that, I I really love Michael Carita. He's he's pretty amazing. His his stories are so intense, and he's he just really has a um, a beam on on suspense and thrilling stories and yeah he's a great guy too let's see i'm i could go on uh well we love all the, we love every everything written this this whole podcast in fact the network is about books so um it's our world um uh the the the, the kind of uh writing that you do i think is gonna um it's going to get noticed just as well as those writers you mentioned, because it's so powerful. So, so strong. Um, and, um, I, again, like I said, I think I told you it's, uh, when I came to the end of the book, I was kind of upset that it wasn't more, there wasn't more of it. <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, just such a, a nice read. Um, one of the things I wanted to say, I have a personal crusade in the writing and, and publishing world. And that is, um, that, teachers growing up, um, maybe they don't do this anymore, but when I was growing up, teachers would give writing as punish work. And <laughs> it's, one, 
one of my pet peeves because writing is a joy and, and that pun and making it punish work to children kind of strips it of that joy. Um, and I, I, um, I, I, it's just that I find writing such, such a, 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 a puzzle to be worked out. Every story is, is like a game as a writer. You're, you're getting to the end of it. you're making it happen. Um, but it's not easy. Um, as you know, um, what, what do you think is the hardest or the most challenging aspect of writing for you? I think uh, just giving myself over to a new story um, in, in making myself uh, sit down. And, and it's really just a matter of giving it over or giving myself over to, to the work. Once I, you're immersed in the work, um, it's a good positive feedback loop. Um, but sometimes I just, uh, I, and I don't believe that I write like other people do. I don't, and I think more and more people are, are saying, you know, you know, fessing up to their lack of discipline. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I, I feel like um, I felt for a long time that I wasn't, I wasn't really measuring up because I don't wake up at 6 a.m. and write for two hours every day. I've never been like that. I There's some deep-seated part of me that just refuses to be that disciplined. But what I'm thinking about these days is that a story has to percolate. It has to just be inside of me for, for weeks or months, if you're talking about a novel. Um, before before there's enough tension to sit down and and write it out and i think ann patchett mentioned that the for the first time um you know that i that i heard a you know a legit writer talking about her process and she she doesn't write the story until she knows the entire story Hmm. um and i think i'm i'm more along those lines um so i just I feel like daydreaming is is a really essential part of creating a story. And for me, walking, and I walk every day, I walk a couple, two to three miles every day, and I, I feel like I work out a lot of things while I'm walking, and I'm letting the story sort of build its own natural tension within me. And then, and then I'm ready to give myself over to sitting down and doing the work of writing the story. Does that make uh, sense? Yes, it does, especially taking yourself outside and having a walk. Um, when you're walking, just the logistics of it, do you do you have write notes on your phone or something if something comes to you that you need to remember? Or do you have, you have a good memory? Because <laughs> I don't. I'm just wondering if you can do that. <laughs> no, I don't have a very good memory. I have this little voice thing on my phone where I can just make notes uh, yeah. or leave myself voice voice notes yeah um i i do that um because i'm all over the place i live in um when when we're not in COVID, i live in new york city but i'm in the country now in the mountains of um, new york upstate new york um and uh, the walking in the city is very different from the walking in the country but they both do something for me like like you just described they help my brain um open up and to start problem solving. I, I wish I could do what you said you do, which is have the whole story uh, before you sit down to write. I uh, most often do, but I don't always do. Sometimes I just get in and start 
trying to iron it out and make and forcing it out. And those those rarely actually work. <laughs> you, I think it's better to have do what you did. I wish I could develop that skill. What What are some of your? No, uh, Let me no? correct myself right there. I, okay. I Ann Patchak can write keep the whole story in her head. Uh, for me, it's it's getting the character and getting the problem. Um, and getting the, the scene or the, the setting, I mean, um, and then I can sit down and then, and then what the the really fun part is when you have all of that and you're writing and then the end presents itself to you. That's, that's like the big payoff. Okay, cool. Because yeah. that's how I that's how I feel. I said earlier, I think writing is like a puzzle as a kid, you know, or as a grown up. Writing is a puzzle. You can play. It's fun to work out because it, it doesn't always reveal itself to you right away. Uh, for me, anyway. So I'm I'm glad to know that you don't have that magical power. <laughs> <laughs> um, so some of your advice, I want to I, I want to talk about. We have. Uh, oh, I'm looking at the clock. We have some time. I want to talk about um, the the our, our um, buzz terms in our podcast theme, and that's. Uh, LGBT um, and and the South. Um, you have uh, your your uh, the settings of, of this book and the uh, the book before it, your first uh, book, the the novel, um, are both in the same region. Um, um, and is that where is that because that's what you you've lived most? Is that you've, you've lived all your life there, or is that something that's calling to you? What to talk talk about the setting? Um, okay, I just. I think you're breaking up just a little bit. Oh, so sorry. I think you're asking me about the setting and and why I set my books there. Yes, yes. What's what what, what about Florida? And I think in, I think you go into Georgia um, in one of the books. I uh, one of the stories um, that you uh, that that make that makes that the setting for you. Well, so I've lived about half of my life now in Georgia and half in in Florida. And the, uh, I guess Florida, I grew up in Florida. So um, the nature here has always been my, my greatest comfort really in the world. I, I would, even when I lived in Georgia, I was coming back to, to Florida for weeks at a time. Um, I, I just feel connected to this, to the state, to the nature here. So uh, and water is just a, a really important theme in my life. I'm always in the water if I have any chance of being in it. Uh, and I know that it's not alligator infested. Right. I will be in that water. <laughs> yeah. Right? So um, I don't know why water is so important to me, but it, it became a, an obvious theme in writing Rising. It comes up in, a, in, a, in several of these stories. You have um, what also struck me is that it's so southern. Um, e- even if you didn't know this, um, these were uh, this states of Georgia or Florida. Um, those, those, those towns, those bleak little towns that that so many of the characters are trying to escape or to to find a way to understand better, whatever. That you describe them and they're they're this their uh, remoteness um, that is so much of the South, but it's also so much of a lot of other parts of the United States. Um, I, I found that wonderful because it surprised me as a person who only knows Florida because of the coastline, Miami and the beaches and, and all that stuff. Um, you forget that it's, it's probably mostly little towns like that. Like a lot of like New York state is uh, New York is uh, full of uh, little, little towns um, and only, 
big New York City and a couple of other major cities. Otherwise, it's very agrarian, very rural, um, agricultural, and things like that. So I, I found that your settings were so wonderful as a person who hosts a podcast for, about the South and about Southern writers and Southern places and Southern things. Um, so rich, and you've delivered for us, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, and the other component of the um, of what I wanted to ask you about is the uh, the, the queer life uh, of uh, giving voices to to people in the LGBT community. As a writer, you said, um, I, I myself, I had the same issue. I always want to. My antenna always go up when I want to help um, anybody I can who has lived through um, the lives we've lived lived through. Um, with a lot of oppression coming from all kinds of directions, some of them you wouldn't expect, um, to give them a, a, some, some uh, optimism. Um, tell our listeners out there who are struggling with various things um, and, and that uh, what it is to write, wh- how, how writing can maybe be a, a, a place to, to come out of that, to help break through some of that um, oppression and bring you, take you out of those little towns, even though you don't physically leave them. I know it's a rambling question, but. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think um, writing stories that are show an element of isolation or loneliness um, is important to me. I, I think that's a matter of, you know, how people who live on the fringe or who exist in the margins experience that lonely, that loneliness and I, I think putting it, the stories in small towns sort of like um, is it, the small town is sort of um, a good meta- metaphor for the loneliness that that people who aren't accepted by mainstream uh, come to, to deal with, you know, every day in their lives. Um, there is a certain amount of loneliness in being, being queer or being on the fringe or in uh, marginalized groups, but there's also a lot of community um, building opportunities to, to build bridges for people, for, you know, for people who live in those communities. Um, Does that make sense? It it does. Um, I've lived it. Um, I came from a small town myself. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot of, of, of learning that we all do. Um, in in this world, in the in, no matter what community we, we belong to, and we each we each have things to share. Um, do you have any 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 advice uh, for um, whether it's a, a young person or a person who's uh, middle aged, um, wanting to um, to take up the uh, art of writing? It's it's something that I I when people ask me, uh, it happens a lot. Um, I oh I want to I always want to be a writer. I said, well, you need to do it. You don't just want to be it if you want if you want to be a real writer you actually have to write <laughs> so that's my advice which is kind of cynical but it's true <laughs> in my mind what what what's you have any advice i think uh reading a lot is is essential understanding how understand the, the craft and you can just spend years and years learning about the craft i i learn so much more every year it, it kind of amazes me that you're building this skill set, you know, you're building your toolbox. And in the beginning, you hear, you hear tips and advice, and 
you you don't have a full canvas, but you keep filling in the canvas as you go along and you, you finally get this like broad canvas. And then when advice comes in, you have a place to plug it in and your understanding just gets deeper and deeper over the years. It's kind of a, it's really a beautiful thing. So my advice is similar to yours. Read a lot and, and write, you know, just if you don't have things to write, there are so many um, online places to get prompts and there's so many online communities building up, especially now a year into the pandemic there, there's a lot you can access online and, and get ideas for writing and get, get education and tips and, and study the craft all, all online. It's, it's pretty sweet right now. And in those terms. Absolutely. Uh, We've never been in a better time to um, break through some of that um, uh, intimidation or, or whatever fear about starting out, just sit down and write Um, the the idea of writer's block to me. I, 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 I've never actually experienced it and I'm old, um, except when having to write a term paper for, for school. Um, but, but to write for my own joy, um, I, I can't wait to get to the desk and sit. And even if it's, if I, the, my little block is like, well, I don't know what I'm writing today. Well, I look out the window. I have my desk by a window intentionally. Um, I look out the window and, um, I write what I see and it, it's kind of a lubricant. It kind of just gets me going and suddenly I discard that, but I, it gets that mechanical um, act going for me and, I can, and then I start rambling like I am now. <laughs> but that's how I get through any kind of p- impasse. And I, my, my advice is you got to try it every day. You know, not going to have, you won't necessarily do it every day, but try make, you have to make time for it. A couple of people um, uh, have reached out to me since my book came out last year. Um, who wanted to do similar things. And I said, you you have a story to tell um, uh, and I'm happy to help you through it, but you're going to have to go sit down and do it. Um, not just want to do it. You have to do it. So, so it's hard. It's a lot of work, but it's, it's joyful work. If it's right, if it's, you know, if, if you're a writer, it's going to be joyful. Yeah, I agree. It is joyful when you, when you find yourself in the middle of a story and, and you, you know, you know who these characters are and you don't, you don't necessarily know what, what's going to come out of their mouth. Uh, dialogue can be one of the most fun things in writing. A, a decent piece of dialogue will take a story in a whole new direction that surprises the reader and the writer. And that that's a real fun thing when it happens, a, a great piece of dialogue. And I just, I will remember sentences from when I was a kid, just like, a, you know, forever ago, a, a certain sentence about a, a certain topic or person will pop in my head while I'm writing. And it, it's wonderful event. It's like you, you get, you have so much to draw on just from conversations and overhearing and eavesdropping. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. When I was bored in um, grad school, I'd go sit in the um, laundry, the, the laundromat and eavesdrop and, t- and write down <laughs> that for that very reason. <laughs> I needed to practice my um, dialogue, uh, writing skills because I was not it was hard um, to put yourself in the head of someone else who's not you um, and and so you got to give them quirks and things that are, are the, otherwise they're all going to sound like you and that's the last thing you want so um, yeah um, that I encourage anybody what you just said eavesdrop listen um, open your ears and then a hundred percent a hundred million percent is read 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 yes um, there's a lot of wonderful things um, 
that inspire that, that are inspirational all all around us. Um, so uh, we are, like I said, and you said, we've never been in a better time for access to that kind of stuff. Um, but once you, but 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 you have to, you can't be a readaholic and not give yourself time to write. You have to put that down on your calendar as one of the to do things instead of just getting the car clean and going to the supermarket and whatnot. Everybody, you know, you got to have that list to make that happen. But the, if writing's not on that list, then you're not going to get it done. Um, so, so yeah. give, it deserves that much care and love as part of your life. And that was the advice I gave to a friend who had a terrible, he had a wonder, he has a set of wonderful, rich life, but he's had some terrible things happen in his life. And I, and I told him, you, you've got a great story to tell. Um, I've known him for years. You've got a great story to tell. Um, you know, and, and the world is going to really enjoy it. You just need to sit down and do it. Um, so, um, I thank you, Gail. Um, we're running at the, towards the end of this. I wanted to know if you had any questions or any final things you want to tell the listeners out there, um, before we sign off today. Well, I would, I would also just say, you know, tease out the difference between publishing, which is a business and an industry and writing, which is art and see yourself as an artist Yes. and value yourself as an artist with something to give to this world and something to say about this world. And, uh, wonderful. Yeah. You're absolutely a zillion percent, a hundred percent, a million. I can't get a high, a high enough number. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks. Thank you All for righty. having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a really fun hour. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. I, I love you giving us this time. Um, I want our listeners to know the name of the book again. It's Rising and Other Stories. It's out right now from Bronzeville Books. Um, join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.